Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind from HowStuffWorks.com. Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb. Hey, I'm Christian Sager. And uh, in this episode, we're going to talk about the work of our Buckminster Fuller. Yeah, this guy was a real visionary, uh, primarily influential between the 1930s and 50s. You may have heard of him as a maybe an engineer or a designer or sometimes as an architect. He really wasn't any of those things technically. He didn't have the, uh, the, the training necessarily. But what he was was a major symbol for counterculture mm-hmm. and influencing people to be creative. I, th- I think that's fair to say. Yeah, yeah. Um, as, as we researched him, and this was a, a guy that I didn't know a lot about. I mean, I, I, I grew up seeing the, the geodesic domes. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, some of the geodesic dome houses near where I lived. Oh, yeah? yeah. I didn't know that. Well, there was one. I, I, I say that as if there was a whole <laughs> yeah, like a neighborhood there. But there was one up on the hill near where uh, where my, my parents lived. Oh, cool. I always tried to imagine what was going on in there. Yeah, yeah. Well, I think I must have heard of him the first time when I went to Epcot Center because mm-hmm. I believe that the, what do they call it, Spaceship Earth? At Epcot Center is is a geodesic sphere. Mm-hmm. I believe it's based on the principles. I don't think that Fuller was involved in constructing it, but but yeah. But certainly the geodesic dome, the geodesic sphere serves as a, a symbol for him. It's this uh, uh, the, the inspiration of what can be done with engineering and and, uh, and ingenuity. Yeah, and and I think that it's very uh, very stuff to blow your mind in terms of how much uh, this show has covered retro futurist kind of aesthetics or uh, engineering principles, ideas, imagination in the past. Yeah, yeah, totally. I mean, and and so much of of what's appealing about Fuller is that he is just the audacity of some of his ideas. Like some of the other visionaries that we've we've touched on on the show before, and we'll touch on in the future. You know, he really he really thought outside the box, to use a, a very cliche term. He, he didn't he didn't have all the filters that uh, that uh, that a lot of us have in trying to envision what we can do with technology and what the future could consist of. Yeah, and my take on this. I, so I went into this episode being a fan of R. Buckminster Fuller, mm-hmm. being very excited about, in particular, the Cloud Nine ideas, which we'll talk about, which are yeah. basically flying cities. Mm-hmm. Um, and I had even written about him for How Stuff Works before, and then really doing a deep dive into the research about him. And in particular, there's an article. Uh, in the New Yorker that came out in 2008 that's called The Dymaxian Man, and it's by a woman named Elizabeth Colbert. Uh, not Colbert. I believe it's Colbert because it's got a K. Mm-hmm. But um, uh, it really highlighted his life beyond just the, you know, the, the big ideas that this guy came up with. And I, I, I think that of him now more along the lines of this generation of men who were big thinkers, but were also sort of con artists in a way. <laughs> The Joe is not going to be delighted. To no, so. Joe. Yeah, for, for those of you who know our, our third host, Joe is a a, a big Buckminster Fuller fan. Has also written about him, uh, but but uh, I'm going to try to convince him. Hopefully, he'll listen to this <laughs> and he'll I'll change his mind. So why don't we start just talking about uh, the? I'm going to call him Bucky. Okay. Buckminster, I think, is going to be a little bit too much, and Mister Fuller seems formal for where we're at. So let's call him Bucky. That's what his friends and family called him. Uh, he was born on July 12th in 1895 in Milton, Massachusetts, which I'm familiar with from the Boston area. Uh, and he died on July 1st in 1983 in LA. Um, he, this is like right out of the gate. Like this, this story of him as a little kid Mm -hmm. 
I think, perfectly illustrates what kind of a human being he grew up into. So he was nearsighted okay. uh, as a child. So was I. I. I started wearing glasses when I was five. But it wasn't until he was actually fitted with glasses, like his parents convinced him, hey, you need glasses. He didn't believe that the world wasn't blurry. He thought the whole <laughs> world was blurry because that's how he saw it. So I know I presented that as a double negative. So he thought the world was blurry. And when they said to him, no, you have something wrong with your eyes, he didn't believe them until somebody actually put glasses on his head and he realized, oh, this is how I'm supposed to see the world. And I think that's a perfect uh, metaphor for this guy's life Yeah, <laughs> as it goes on, basically. I mean, I, I see some of that in my uh, my own uh, toddler. Uh, oh, yeah. Not to say that he's going to, you know, grow up to be uh, such an iconic uh, figure, uh, but... Uh, I wouldn't be surprised. But there's a stubbornness at times to uh-huh. uh, you know, to, to a kid. You know, they, they think they know how the world works, and they don't they, they don't accept the uh, the counter-argument that you present them with, but but may, maybe that's part of, uh, of of Fuller's vibe, and why it resonates so much is because he kept that uh, that kind of childish uh, vision and uh, and assuredness uh, as yeah. an adult. Yeah, I think you might be right. Well, here's another thing. Tell me if your son does this yet. Okay. Okay. Buckminster Fuller constantly collected throughout his entire life scrapbooks of his uh, letters, articles, everything as a record of his life. This included receipts for everything, like dry cleaning bills. And uh, we have all of this today. He actually referred to it later on as the Dimaxion Chronophile. <laughs> he, he loved coming up with weird names for things. See, now that sounds a lot more impressive until you realize it has like laundry receipts in it. Yeah, yeah. 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 So is um, uh, is your son keeping a Dimaxion Chronophile? Uh, he has a box of rocks. He comes home every day with like <laughs> six different rocks in his pocket. So sort of an early uh, early stage yeah. uh, file keeping system. Well, I could see them keeping that in an archive someday, and that's what they did with, with Fuller actually. Uh, it weighs 45 tons, this guy's archives. So I, I used to work in a academic library and uh, work a lot with archivists and special collections. And 45 tons is a lot. Uh, that's a lot of material. It's the largest personal archive that's uh, currently at Stanford University. So, I mean, I think it's basically everything this guy ever wrote down to paper mm-hmm. he thought was going to be important in some way and kept a copy of it. Um, and and it's, uh, it, it's just kind of fascinating. Like, I think about other figures throughout history who, even at a young age, were convinced that whatever they had was going to be so important that one day mankind was going to need to go look back upon these papers. <laughs> <laughs> you know, even w- when you're a child, uh, Theodore Roosevelt was a guy like this, kept kept a log of pretty much everything he did. Um, and that also, I think there's a certain amount of narcissism <laughs> that comes into play there. Yeah, I would think so. I mean, it, and yeah, we definitely see that with with Fuller and that he's from a, from an early point keeping keeping a file, a, a, a holy document of what he is uh, setting out to achieve. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, that's that's the uh, basics of what we have of him as a child. But like many people in his family, mostly men, uh, he went to Harvard University. Uh, unfortunately, halfway through his freshman year, he took his tuition money and he took it out of the bank and he said, I'm going to use this to entertain chorus girls in Manhattan. <laughs> uh story goes that Harvard wasn't pleased about this. Uh, he was expelled. Uh, a year later, they reinstated him, and then he got thrown out again. 
Uh, we don't know why. Maybe it was Chorus Girls again. Who knows? Uh, but the, the 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 gist of it is that Bucky never graduated from any college. He doesn't have a degree in engineering. He um, he really, you know, from what it sounds like, he he uh, was a book learning man. You mm-hmm. know, um, which is which is fine. But I think like when you see some of the large scale projects he was hired for later on, based on his chutzpah, <laughs> it makes you it makes you wonder. Um, so anyway, so after this whole Harvard thing collapsed for him, he went on, he took a meatpacking job, then he joined the Navy. When he was in the Navy, this is when he really started his whole like invention kick, right? So right. he, uh, he invented this device to rescue pilots that had like, you know, crashed at sea. And, um, what, what ended up happening was this device often just flipped them upside down and dunked them head first into the water and held them underwater. <laughs> right. Well, you know, it, it expedites the process, uh, but yeah. just not in the, the way that Not the way uh, I think the Navy was looking yeah. for. <laughs> um, and then, uh, you know, after World War, or rather during World War I, he, he got married and he started a business with his wife's father. His wife's father was an architect. And so I think that this is where he, you know, picked up a lot of his knowledge. But the, the two of them started this business together where they manufactured books out of wood shavings. And I was trying to imagine what this even meant. Hmm. I, it's, it's one thing to read that as a sentence in an article. I don't know what does that mean. They they took the wood shavings and they they like pulped them down. I guess it certainly makes me think of um, sort of um, you know homemade paper craft yeah. that you see nowadays. But well, I, it, it's hard to imagine. But uh, it company went almost bankrupt, <laughs> and uh, then uh, somebody bought it from the two of them in 1927. So at this point, this is this is uh, an interesting point in, in Bucky's life. Uh, and by different accounts from what I read, uh, it's acknowledged differently. Uh, e- even stories say, uh, that if, like there are interviews with his daughter mm-hmm. saying that this, what I'm about to tell you is, is probably fictional. Basically, uh, he comes to a crossroads in his life. Oh, right? yeah. Oh, yeah. Literally. Like he, uh, his daughter was born. Um, he claimed that at the time he became really depressed because he didn't have a job. He couldn't provide for his family. So he, he was on a walk he was walking alongside Lake Michigan and he had suicidal thoughts. And so some versions of this story say that he claims suddenly he was suspended several feet above the air, above the ground rather in the air and saw a light and he heard a voice say, you do not have the right to eliminate yourself. And then it said, you do not belong to you. You belong to the universe. Uh, and so uh, I, presumably he was set back down and uh, he had this epiphany that this was a sign that he should start a lifelong experiment uh, where basically he should figure out how one person himself could benefit all of humanity, could change all of humanity for the better. And this is where he really started hitting the books, right? Hanging out in libraries, mm-hmm. compiling notes, and really trying to figure out how he can transform the world, right? Yeah, and he, ref- he <laughs> again, so he's keeping like documentation of all mm-hmm. of this stuff, right? So rather than go get a job and support his family, he goes to the library. He refers to himself in third person as guinea pig B. <laughs> Presumably B is Bucky. Uh-huh. Uh, and he starts writing this booklet that he called the 4D Time Lock. Uh, and, uh, from what I understood, uh, it's apparently quite hard to read. It's, it's, uh, 
the, the reviews rather <laughs> of it were were that it was a uh, you know the prose was dense it was it barely made any sense but essentially it's a diatribe about how we uh, were failing at that time in how we constructed modern homes and how we were basically like real estate and construction. Um, and he felt like this was this was how he was going to impact humanity. He was going to change production, basically, of um, of home life. And this comes along at a, at a at a key point too, because we're we're in this industrialized world. We're seeing these uh, these sort of cookie cutter designs roll out in the world around us, but right. we're also seeing futuristic visions of what's possible showing up in our our science fiction and advertising and. Uh, and, and, and Bucky's ideas kind of serve as a, as a bridge to that. Yeah, I think that's important to remember is that, like, there were a lot of people at that time who were having amazing imaginative ideas, mm-hmm. uh, really, that, you know, I think that um, formed what we think of today as sort of our science fiction fantasy uh, conventions, right. I guess, right? Like, the aesthetics behind that. And Fuller, Bucky rather, uh, sort of thought of himself, you know, he, he wasn't in a fictional space. He saw this as, no, the, this is how we're going to change the real world, no matter how unrealistic it was, or even as we'll find out later that he came up with ideas for things that hadn't been invented yet. So his excuse for why he couldn't construct things was, well, the materials aren't here. Yeah, yeah. sorry, this doesn't actually exist, so I can't make it yet. Yeah, I mean, he was, like a lot of people at the time, uh, riding that wave of technological optimism, mm-hmm. um, where it seemed... That all these things would definitely come to fruition, and uh, and so he's just sort of dreaming, dreaming ahead of that wave crashing. Yeah, yeah, definitely. So I'd like uh, before we get into the first of his his large, uh, you know, scale inventions. Here's a couple other notes about him, just so we've we've got a framework of Buckminster Fuller as a man. Uh, so later on in his life, after he gained some notoriety, he was an academic, uh, and reportedly. He could lecture for 10 hours at a time, uh, and that if you had class with him, they lasted from 9 a.m. until 5 p.m. And this was not like the kind of like a seminar where you broke out into group sessions and you were interacting with your classmates. Fuller spoke the entire time. He basically just lectured at people for eight <laughs> to ten hours at a time. Uh, but he was very charismatic, so presumably yeah. this is... It's not as dreary a ten. It's much as ten hour lecture. Uh, I get the impression yeah. that people weren't falling asleep. Yeah, <laughs> that it was a, a spectacle to behold. Um, it, of course, he believed all the pro- world's problems could be solved by technology. That's basically the the, the philosophy behind a lot of, mm-hmm. of of what he saw. Yeah, he also proposed a clear dome uh, be constructed over Manhattan, a um, tetrahedron suburb in San Francisco Bay, and he patented a scheme for an underwater city. So he's really thinking about, I guess, like what we would call today urban studies, right? Yeah. Like he was he was thinking about cities uh, as microcosms of people and how we could put them elsewhere, whether that be the sky, underwater. I don't know why Manhattan would need a dome, but I think this is something that's caught on in fiction because I, I feel like I've seen it in a lot of other. Uh, yeah, it definitely shows up in Futurama. There's a. Oh, really? At some point, the uh, uh, the city of New New York is uh, is covered in a dome. I don't recall okay. exactly why, but uh, but it does happen. Yeah, maybe like acid rain or something yeah. like that. Although I don't know that that was what his thinking was. 
Um, here's another uh, interesting thing about him. So while he did believe that technology was the you know saving grace for all of humanity, he didn't believe in evolution. What he actually thought were that human beings had come from another part of the universe, like another planet, mm-hmm. uh, totally as we are right now, and populated the planet Earth. Like somebody dropped us off here. Uh, he also thought that dolphins were descendants from these like proto-humans that came to Earth and huh. that they had like... Um, become seafaring proto-humans and eventually turned into dolphins. Ah, I bet he, I wonder if he ever met up with John C. Lilly. They, they definitely lived, uh, at the same time. Yeah. I, and you were telling me about Lilly earlier. So mm-hmm. I think that, um, he sounds like somebody we should definitely talk about on the show. Yeah. In the I think we should do a, a full episode on Lilly at some point because, uh, he's a fascinating dude and we've only, we've only really touched on some of his, uh, crazier ideas here yeah. on the show in the past and there's a lot more to him than that well we'll we'll save that for another episode but here's the last thing i'll i'll, I'll give you on bucky this is one of my favorites uh before we get into the di- D- dimaxian inventions that he had okay um for many years bucky had a very specific diet and there were only a few things he would eat and they consisted of prunes okay. tea steak and jello those were like his four food groups: prunes, tea, steak, and Jello. Wow. Well, I, hmm. I think you'd have to put a lot of different things into that Jello, um, right? To, to really make that diet work. Like, but what are the? I'm trying to imagine. I know that there's a recipe, and I may be taking us off track here, but isn't there something like where you there's like a mold of Jello where you embed other food products inside the Jello, like in suspended animation? Oh yeah, like uh, little bits of fruit. Yeah. 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 Yeah, 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 yeah. But in his case, it would just be like prunes and and steak. Oh, like you, know, you, you imagine it all combined. <laughs> yeah, into one. Yeah, 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 yeah. He just had this one thing that he would eat every day. Yeah, yeah. It's not. I mean, because he was very utilitarian. He'd yeah. Want to make it as simple as possible. <laughs> Okay, so with this gives you an idea of what kind of a person Fuller was. He, like I said earlier, he liked to make up words of his own. Mm-hmm. So this leads us to his favorite word that he made up. Well, he didn't make it up, actually, but it was made up. Dimaxion. Uh, it, there was a consultant who was working to sell model homes, and they came up with it. And it's a mash of three words that they thought sounded exciting at the time. Dynamic, maximum, and ion. Ah, well, it is good, it is good marketing. I'm maxi on. Yeah, I'd buy that. But it's perfect for Fuller, right? Because so, so many of these ideas are, are about the marketing of the dream and not so yeah. much about the realization of it. Yeah, I, I think if he were alive today, he would very much be like the kind of madman mm-hmm. that would, that would work in advertising or marketing. Yeah, yeah. or just do a lot of TED Talks. Maybe. Definitely. A TED oh, talking. he would be yeah. a TED Talker for sure. You're right. Uh, so, so he took this word dimaxian and he just applied it to a lot of his, you know, invention ideas. Um, the first one was the dimaxion vehicle. So this was a car that had three wheels. There were two in the front, one in the back, and instead of a rear view mirror, it had a periscope. Um, I, I tried imagining how that would work. So you're, you would like what lean over and put your eye in the periscope to see behind you. I guess so, but of course it's, that's not really too different from what we have now with the the yeah. rear view uh, video, right? Oh yeah, yeah, that's true. That's true. Yeah, I've never driven a car with one of those before, but yeah, it, it works. But yeah. it, you know, ultimately, not too different from a periscope. So I'm going to give him a I'm going to give him a break. On give the him a pass on yeah. that. Well, apparently, this car was really good for for like you know odd parking maneuvers. So if you're the kind of person who has trouble parallel parking, I think the Dimaxion vehicle was for you, <laughs> uh, and it was apparently very good at. W- 
180 degree turns. Uh, but mm, it caused a lot of controversy when it was first introduced. The very first time he uh, put it out on the road in 1933, there was so much hype and people were so uh, surprised by seeing it on the road that it caused gridlock that uh, people just weren't driving because they were all staring at this thing. Yeah, I, I can definitely understand. I mean, I, I, I feel like when I see a vehicle that's particularly uh, futuristic driving around town here in Atlanta, it, mm. it throws me off uh, for a minute, and I almost wreck the car. Yeah, yeah. In yeah, fact, definitely. there's somebody near uh, the office here. I see him coming in and out of the the Whole Foods parking lot. Oh yeah, in uh, some sort. I don't even know what you call them these days, but it has two ve- two wheels in the front and one in the back. Oh, so it's, really? It's kind of a maybe it's Dynaxian like vehicle. Yeah. Oh, now I'm curious. I'll yeah. have to, you know who we should ask about this is the car stuff guys. Yeah, Scott they would know. They I would know if, what this is called. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, I, I even considered asking them if they had already covered the Dymaxion vehicle. I'm not sure if they have or not, but I'm sure Scott's heard of it before. Um, so Fuller basically envisioned that this vehicle would go beyond the three-wheel model that he had built. He wanted it to fly. He wanted it, basically he wanted everything he made yeah. to fly. That was kind of his thing. Um, but he he thought it would be kind of like a duck, the way that it would take off, uh, and that it would also ha- be built in such a way so that like when it was on land, it could travel on the roughest roads. But then when there is terrain that you couldn't necessarily get over with you know the three wheels on on the Dymaxion vehicle, it would just take off and fly over the stuff. Um, he so here's what happened with the Dymaxion vehicle. They built one prototype. And it's this one that caused the grid block, I believe. Uh, three months after it was released, it crashed. The driver was killed. Uh, the the One of the passengers was seriously injured. Uh, but later on, they determined, I believe it was at like a World's Fair that this happened or, or something similar to that, like one of these big exhibitions of technology. Uh, they, they determined another car was found responsible for the accident. And they only produced two more of these. And then the whole thing was just put on hold because, you know, it just, it, it, it was, uh, again, like many of his ideas, it was a, it was a cool idea, but mm-hmm. it wasn't exactly practical or functional. Yeah. As a, as an inspiration and as, and as an argument, it, it, it totally works because it's, it's Bucky saying, Hey, why does a car have to be this? Let's mm-hmm. think outside mm-hmm. of the timeline so far. Let's think about what is, what's possible and not just what we have to work with. Yeah. But when you start actually, you know, putting a tire to the road, uh, it doesn't always work out. And I imagine that, like, the investors involved, you know, he must have had to have, he must have been a very charming man in order to convince people to put their money into these projects. Yeah. Um, and so that leads us to the next Dymaxion uh, invention, which was the Dymaxion house. So that, like, like the car and some of the other stuff we're going to see later on, he, he very much had this idea, I think, of, like, everything being kind of like... Uh, what we would refer to now as plug and play, right? Yeah, like you just, modular, right? Yeah. yeah, you buy it and it's just right out of the box, good to go. And so that's what he wanted this house to be. It was something that you could erect in one day, com- totally complete. Like, I think furniture and definitely appliances were all built into the structure. They just sort of like unfold and be there. Uh, uh, he called it drudgery proof. <laughs> I don't know what that necessarily meant other than that, like, maybe he, th- he thought it would be aesthetically pleasing. When well, I, you don't have to go through the rigmarole of building a uh, yeah. house, right? Well, I guess that's true, yeah. I, I thought more of that it was like the drudgery of everyday life, you know, that hmm. that there was something about the home that would kind of put a little spring in your step. Well, I mean, as as a homeowner, it does, like, the, the home comes to you kind of broken, even mm-hmm. if it's, even if you had to build the damn thing. Mm-hmm. It's, it's, it's in a constant state of breaking. Yeah. <laughs> so this true. is, uh, and, and you're having to repair it, and then, 
So maybe the drudgery-free home, it's just simply this, this. Like, if your microwave breaks, you just buy a new home. Yeah, yeah, it's a, the complete modular home, yeah. just a complete insert. It's just if you're, you know, th- this one's broken, well, great, just tear tear, tear the, the fresh strip off the new one, <laughs> plug it into your lot, and you're good to go. Yeah, yeah, I think that's how he was thinking. I mean, uh, it only really made it to s- sketch stages in the, at the beginning. Um, what he envisioned was that there were these ultra-lightweight towers and that they'd be assembled at a particular location. I guess there would be like a... a, a factory or something where they're mm-hmm. making these and then they would have zeppelins transport them around the world i love that uh, that detail of it because yeah it's, it's just go ahead and throw airships in there like mm-hmm. like every every idea that he has is uh, is tailor-made for one of those old uh, popular science uh, covers right yeah and this is like straight out of like a um pulp <laughs> pulp novel from the 30s yeah. too like like the way that they would uh excavate this didn't actually happen but theoretically they would excavate sites to to place these homes in by just you know dropping bombs from the zeppelin <laughs> just drop a small bomb just a small one blow up the area flatten mm-hmm. it out and then you could put your dimaxian home down yeah again just completely thinking outside of uh, existing context uh-huh. you know why not why can't we dig a hole in a neighborhood by the use of smart bomb. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And I then mean, just drop it, drop the house in there from a Zeppelin. I wouldn't be surprised if it came back around again, you know, <laughs> with the way, at least here in Atlanta with the way real estate's or real estate prices are going, you know. Yeah. It's just <laughs> Yeah, we'll just drop a bomb, knock down a whole neighborhood and then put a bunch of these. That's basically what does happen, you know, when you when you think about these like uh, live work play units that go up in like a year, you know. They're just uh really qu- quickly built. Maybe he did inspire some uh some engineers and architects. So the second version of this, this is the one that, that ended up like b- being built, uh, was, it was shaped like a hexagon mm-hmm. and it was made out of stamped metal and it was suspended on a mast. And the mast, uh, the, the way I'm envisioning it was like, this was sort of like a telephone pole maybe. Mm-hmm. Um, and this mast contained all the wiring and plumbing and stuff like that today. That's where we'd have our, you know, internet cords and stuff like that. Uh, and then when a family moved, they would just disassemble the house uh, and pack it up and move it with them. Uh, it would it basically like another piece of furniture or something like that. Um, and he really only built the scale model that was exhibited in 1929. There was no full-size version ever built because Fuller said the components weren't made yet. There was, you know, the, the stuff didn't exist yet. I think it went beyond just like the stamped metal and, and the, 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 the structure of the thing. I think he was thinking along the lines of like sort of science fiction-y type, uh, uh, technology that would come as part of this home. Uh, stuff that we probably consider, you know, normal nowadays, like, uh, you know, entertainment center or something like that. Yeah. Yeah. And, and you know, you could, of course, say the same thing, uh, for the, um, the zeppelins and the bomb dropping, right? Right. Because you could say that, well, technology just wasn't there yet and still isn't there yet enough to where we would trust, say, a drone to deliver uh, an explosive device right. to a neighborhood or, uh, you know, or, or be able to adequately deliver things via some sort of a, you know, a drone zeppelin uh, scenario. So, okay. So he didn't have the materials then. We're talking, mm-hmm. this is like late thirties, I think. Um, we probably do now. Uh, so is this feasible? Is this something that we could do today? Well, I think one of the, the big things is that, uh, is that Fuller is very much rebelling against existing notions of what we should have. And he's saying, what, what can we have? What we can, what can we create that'll fulfill those needs? When clearly we're, the rest of us, the, the non-Buckies out there 
are are mostly tied to tradition too strongly to say, you know what, I'm not going to live in a house. I'm not even going to live in a modern house. I'm going to live in some sort of a space-age tent that, yeah. <laughs> that I fold up and take with me when I move, you know? You know, you occasionally see these, like, kind of articles in science magazines where it's like, hey, look at this this home that this one person has mm-hmm. built, and it's very much kind of like this, but there's only one of them, you know what I mean? Yeah. It's like a... Um, uh, some sort of like cross between a Winnebago and like a Hobbit hole. It's like this, yeah. this you know, uh, amazing idea for a custom built home. Um, yeah, I just I, I wonder if it's feasible to mass produce them the way that he was imagining. You know, well, what you got to have demand be there, or or true. it's got to be a situation where there's a real need for it. Because uh, one of the applications that. Uh, that has come up uh, at times with some of these designs as well. You could use it for emergency housing. Yeah. You could use essentially uh, a better take on, say, a FEMA trailer uh, mm-hmm. type of scenario. Yeah, that's true. And and um, I, th- here's what I think of it as. You, you remember in The Fifth Element, the, the apartment that Bruce Willis lives in in that? Uh, I don't remember. I remember it was vaguely Blade Runner-y, but He's I don't. Ba- yeah, so it's basically like all the apartments are just like a bed and then like... That folds out of a wall and everything else folds out of a wall. You're basically in like a room that's the size of like a walk-in closet. Mm-hmm. And it's got one window and a door and they're kind of like stacked on top of each other like um, like uh, crates yeah. almost. Um, that, that That's what I keep thinking of when I'm thinking of like uh, the Buckminster Fuller Dymaxion house. You know, like your shower head pops out of the wall in the corner mm-hmm. and then like the house is somehow designed so that all the water drains down immediately. You know, uh, your your kitchen surfaces pop out of the sides of the wall. Whatever whatever you need is available, but basically the space is very compact and small, and the the the, the actual structure itself is utilitarian. Okay, so the space transforms to meet your needs at that yeah. time. So if it yeah. needs to be a bathroom, a toilet pops up. Yeah, if it needs to be exactly. a bed, a bed comes down. Yeah. If you just need to do yoga, everything goes into the walls. Right, yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. Um, and I don't know if that's feasible either, but... But I, like some of the, some of the architecture, I think that we're seeing people experiment with today, we might we might be heading towards something like that. Um, so okay, so he tried to mass produce these, even though they never really got off the ground. He worked together with this aircraft company in Wichita. So this was 1945. Sorry, so not the late 30s, mid mid 40s. Um, he did try to build two examples. They collapsed. Uh, the only surviving version of this actually is in the Henry Ford Museum in Dearborn, Michigan. So if you're out in Dearborn, you can go see one of these things, see how it worked. We'd love to hear uh, from you guys if, if you've seen this before in action. I'm, I'm sure some listeners have seen one of these or maybe they'll have seen some of the geodesic domes we're going to talk about shortly. Um, he, uh, he applied Dymaxion to almost everything. I'm surprised there wasn't a Dymaxion dome. But uh um there was he, a bathroom. Yeah. We, we were already talking about fifth element bathrooms. Yeah. He he got in there as well. So the bathroom was just this single unit that had a built in shower, toilet and sink, etc. It was just all you know, it was basically like a a porta potty mm-hmm. with like a, a sink and a shower built into it. Yeah, um, and you know, I'm I'm kinda sold on this because uh Yeah. So much goes into the, the modern bathroom. Like there's, say, like if you build a bathroom onto your house, um, like it, it just it gets really complicated really fast. Mm-hmm. And you have to worry about like how far is it, or you're gonna have to have additional pumps, and there's so many pipes going into it. But if you could just drop something in, if there was just this module, like Lego, yeah. Just this Lego block brought to your <laughs> your your house project by a Zeppelin. Yeah. Then uh, 
Why not? Yeah. yeah. No, and, he and, the, certainly... and the bathroom is another, is one of those key areas where we really don't do a lot of rethinking of the bathroom. So it's prime oh, yeah. for a full Bucky uh, redo. Yeah. Yeah, that's true. Oh, that could, we could do a whole episode on that. Oh, yeah. Just I like mean, the, the audacity of the, the modern toilet is, I mean, it's just ridiculous. So we, we should be rethinking the toilet more than we do, which makes me wonder to, to what extent he, he actually changed how we poop. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I'm sure that there was a Dymaxian toilet out there mm-hmm. somewhere that reimagined that whole scenario. I know, uh, you and Julie had covered something like that previously, right? Yeah, yeah, we talked a bit about, uh, about the science of pooping and, mm-hmm. uh, yeah, I've, since that episode, I've become a big uh, advocate of uh, the squat potty. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, who knows? I'm sure if he were here today, Bucky would listen. Yeah, I, I can imagine he would be a squatter if he were uh, if he were around now. But at the time, it just the uh, the concept might not have been out there enough for him. Yeah, could have been a little too risque. I mean, yeah. flying cities was pretty much as hard <laughs> as far as he could push it. And just to run through a couple of other Dymaxian uh, ideas he had, there was the Dymaxian Development Unit, which was uh, essentially a mobile shelter, also descri- uh, described as a grain bin with windows. And I believe this was something that like the military would use, right? Yeah. They'd deploy this in scenarios. Essentially so like, like a FEMA trailer sort yeah. of situation. Yeah. Um, and then he also had a Dymaxian map, which is a projection of the world map onto the surface of an Isohedron, a, a, in other words, a 20 sided uh, polygon, uh, which can be unfolded and flattened to two dimensions. Huh. Yeah. Which right. also didn't catch on. So I'm trying to imagine this basically looks like a large 20 sided die for D&D. Exactly. It unfolds into a map. Yeah. W- why? Why? Because cause it's cool. <laughs> okay. <laughs> but the, but that's just like the flat map didn't work for him. He needed to. The flat be, map. He wanted to like carry it around. Yeah, the Dymaxian him. man can't really roll with a traditional map. Yeah. He, he needs a map that, uh, that, that looks like it was given to us by aliens. You're already like thinking in the Madison Avenue, uh, <laughs> like version of Dymaxian man sales. I, I like that. I think it would be a great name for a store. Yeah. Shop at Dymaxian, man. I'm, I, yeah. I would not be surprised because when I was doing research for this, the, the, uh, estate of our Buck, Buckminster Fuller is kept up pretty well. The website's pretty interesting mm-hmm. and has a lot of information of it, uh, on him of its own. Um, but I wouldn't be surprised if there is somebody who is holding the copyright to Dymaxion right now and just waiting for the opportunity. Oh, yeah. Because, I mean, again, a lot of these ideas were, according to the man himself, um, ahead of their time and ahead of, ahead of, ahead of even our time. So maybe it's just uh, about waiting for them to uh, come to fruition. Yeah. Yeah, it could be. Well, here's one that sort of worked. This, uh, he didn't use Dymaxion for this. This is the geodesic dome. So this is what most of us... Uh, probably recognize Bucky's contributions from. Uh, so the Dymaxian stuff wasn't, wasn't successful. Um, so he said, hmm, that didn't work. You know what I'm gonna do? I'm gonna, uh, invent my own system of geometry. Uh, and I'm gonna call it synergetic geometry. Uh, and he decided that 90 degree angles, he's gonna throw those out. It's all gonna be based on 60 degree angles. And apparently he hated the number pi. So he didn't he didn't like the idea of using that ungainly number to represent, you know, uh, the geometry with its circles. Mm-hmm. So he even though it works, he said, nope, let's throw that away. We're going to use the tetrahedron as this basic building block for the universe. And everything's going to stem out of that. Yeah, this is interesting because it, it brings to mind a, 
a number of these different uh, threads in mysticism that uh, that apply a lot of uh, mystic significance to the the tetrahedron. You know, like the mm-hmm. like a tetrahedron is God. The tetrahedron oh, yeah. is uh, is having uh, uh, some sort of uh, mathematical mystic uh, significance. I wonder why that is. I'm sure. I'm sure. Again, we're, this episode I feel like is leading like, us into like a spider web of other future <laughs> episodes. But there's got to be some connection there that makes it. Um, cross-cultural, right? Yeah. Like that it's something that, that other, um, uh, groups of humans have all come up on their own separately. So he's into the tetrahedron. Mm-hmm. He decides that he's going to invent this thing that he calls the geodesic dome. And basically what it is, is a series of struts, like me- metallic, I believe, struts that support a skin kind of covering, not, not actual skin. He's not Buffalo Bill here. It's, it's, you know, some kind of a material he's using. Uh, but basically, this looks like a sphere cut in half, but it's composed of triangular support. So that's where this tetrahedron stuff comes in. Mm-hmm. Um, so at the time, you know, he actually managed to parlay the whole Dymaxion failure into a teaching position at Black Mountain College in North Carolina. And he was working with a team of students, uh, and they built one of these as like, you know, I, th- I think part of one of his classes or something like that. And uh, immediately it sagged and fell in on itself. So we were looking at the, the, the Dymaxion home all over again. Uh, and he claimed the in- he intentionally wanted this to happen because, you know, a bunch of the faculty at the school were like, oh, there's this, this wacko fuller. Mm-hmm. He just had the whole class build a crazy dome for a semester and then <laughs> collapsed. What's going on? Yeah. And he apparently they were, were referring to it on campus as a floppahedron. Oh. Uh, and uh, so he says, no, I intentionally did that because I wanted to know at what point the dome would collapse. You know, we, you got to figure out the 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 weak structural points of this thing. He reminds me a lot of the cat in the hat at this point, because uh, <laughs> the, the cat in the hat, who I've been reading a lot recently, um, you know, is always causing a mess, but is, uh, but it, but keeps reframing it as being a part of the plan. Yeah. Like, I knew this would happen. I knew that the, um, multiple cats would uh, turn the yard into pink goo. I knew that the the thing one and thing two would run wild. But uh, but there's a plan here and everything's going to work out in the end because I know what I'm I know what I'm doing here. Yeah, Fuller doesn't strike me as a man that was capable of admitting when he was wrong very mm-hmm. easily. Um and and that leads us into there was there was some controversy around all of this. So he actually didn't invent these domes. Um, a guy named Walter Bowersfield had already designed something like this for a planetarium in Germany in 1926. But Fuller got the paperwork done first. So uh-huh. he uh, basically filed, you know, the, the copyright uh, registration, whatever it was at the time that he was using for this. Uh, and so even though, you know, the geodesic domes basically use this method, method that Bowersfeld had come up with, Bucky held the U.S. patent. And popularized the whole idea, and so we think of him as being the inventor for this thing. Um, having worked on our show Stuff of Genius here at How Stuff Works, which is largely about inventors and things they've invented, that is a common story with almost all inventions. That yes, uh, somebody else invented it, but this person got to the copyright office first. So there was another person as well that mm. that Bucky uh, is, essentially took an idea from. Uh, this was one of his students who is at Black Mountain College. Um, mm. so, so part of the idea of these geodesic domes was that they were held together by something that he called 
tensegrity. Okay. Again, not a real word. I, I, I don't. Mm, I don't know uh, because uh, uh, what I from what I read, he the the way he used the term was that it was a combination of tension and integrity. Okay. Uh, yeah, I'm not. I think he just like takes words and slams them together. <laughs> well, you know, there's there's a there's a fine art to creating a good portmanteau. But, uh, yeah, exactly. Um, but one of the students from that program, Kenneth Snelson, claimed that he was actually the one who came up with the whole idea for these sculptures, these geodesic dome sculptures, uh, and that he worked on it while he was a student there, but he was under Fuller at the time, and that Fuller then was like, okay, well, here's this, this is tensegrity, that's what we're gonna call it, and yeah, you know, he just took off with the idea. So there is, again, some controversy about whether or not any of this, now keep in mind, this is like one of the only things that he did that actually sort of worked. Right. Um, and, and so there's controversy about whether or not he even came up with it in the first place himself. But it did work, and you do see these, Domes, yeah, around the country. Yeah, in fact, you can you know you can very easily uh, do a search and look up geodesic domes and see they're they're used all over the world. Actually, mm-hmm. you know, um, the one that is the the, the most famous, uh, I believe it's the U.S. Pavilion for the Expo '67 in Montreal. Um, they built the, they built this geodesic dome structure, and there's a lot of people that you know it's it's fairly noteworthy. But I, I believe that there's some in Japan. You said. You're even seeing some in your neighborhood growing up. Yeah, yeah. Just down the middle of nowhere in Tennessee, there's a, a geodesic dome house up yeah. on the hill. Well, apparently, uh, the, you know, there was a little bit of problems with these, uh, and one of which was that they all leaked. So I'm, I'm curious if <laughs> the people that, that live nearby you had problems with leaking, uh, especially like in heavy rain seasons, uh, you couldn't seal them successfully the mm-hmm. way that they were designed. Um, uh, some people even said about um, ones that they built under Fuller's guidance that they would, you know, add, um, uh, what would you call it, like caulking or, or some kind of, you know, material in order to cover up the spaces in between the, the triangles. Mm-hmm. And, and that would just make it even worse. All right. So well, part of the problem here is that you're creating, you're creating a drastically new house, mm. but and with that comes drastically new problems, perhaps, you know? Mm-hmm. I mean, it, it is, it's separate from the sort of ev- evolution of the existing house design, so. Yeah, yeah. And think about it, you've got, you know, what kind of a home would that be like? You're basically just under one huge dome. Like, there's not a lot of ways that you can subdivide that up. I mean, you could, but um, from what a lot of people have said who have worked on these things, that the acoustics are, as you would imagine, you know, pretty terrible. They just broadcast everything that one person says over <laughs> to the other side of the house. So there's not necessarily a whole lot of privacy there. Yeah, one of those structures that, that looks great, I'm sure, as a, as a set for a science fiction movie. But then you start yeah. asking questions well, like, well, how do we divide these rooms out? And then you have, you're have you going to have these weird rooms where everything just sort of uh, caves off and, into the yeah. corner. Yeah. Um, yeah. So again, wonderful concept. But then when you start applying it to the to real life and reality and our expectations and demands of real life and reality, uh, some of the uh, some of the plot holes begin to show. But it, you know, it, he was able to get people to invest money in this, yeah. uh, including his wife. His wife sold thirty thousand dollars in stocks that she had to help fund his research, so he could keep working on these things. And eventually, he built a fifty foot diameter dome that worked, you know, other than the leaking. Uh, today it is known as, quote, the only large dome that can be set directly on the ground as a complete structure and the only practical kind of building that has no limiting dimensions beyond which the ins- the structural strength must be insufficient. So 
That sounds architecturally fascinating. Yeah, I mean, it definitely, I mean, it definitely lines up with his uh, his outlook on life. That technology mm-hmm. can achieve all things, and here he has achieved a, essentially a perfect form. Right? It can. It, it, it works at, at any given size. Yeah, and, and and I think the thing about these that is we should point out that's somewhat marvelous is mm-hmm. how light they are for their size, right? So he built one for the Ford Motor Company in 1953. Uh, it was to this is I, I assume why uh, a lot of his stuff is in the Dearborn, Michigan Museum. There, um, he used aluminum and fitted it with fiberglass. And uh, it was a 93-foot dome, and it only weighed 8.5 tons. So, you know, uh, I'm, I'm not a structural engineer, but that sounds uh, fairly light. Yeah. Um, and and then that so okay so his wife puts in 30 grand. Ford Motor Company hires him, and then the Pentagon hires him, and they say, build us this protective housing unit for our radar. So another dome structure that, you know, basically I think they wanted to like keep their radar so it wasn't, the equipment wasn't uh, so obvious. From yeah, the yeah, like basically instead of a traditional dome, use the geodesic dome and then it'll maybe be have a little more structural integrity to it. Yeah, possibly. Uh, and legend has it even Nikita Khrushchev wanted Bucky to come to Moscow and build one of these for him. Um, and Bucky himself lived in one uh, near Carbondale, Illinois, Illinois, while he was working at Southern Illinois University. So uh, that's the one in particular that I know leaks really okay. badly. Uh, the, the, that was the one that that uh, I read interviews with people who'd worked on the construction of it. And they were just saying, yeah, like, you know, he lived there, qu- lived in quotations. But I think that uh, it wasn't necessarily habitable. Hmm. So... That brings us to the natural extens- extension of the geodesic sphere, which is, hmm, I've got this idea for the sphere thing. It's kind of working out okay. I got car companies and the Pentagon giving me money to make more of these. What if I could make these things fly? Yeah. I mean, he's, and he's already expressed an interest in sealing up cities and domes and whatnot. And, and so this is a, like the perfect extension, perfect uh, extension of his design philosophy. Enclose us, enclose all of us, enclose a community yeah. in this structure that he has dreamed up. And then that structure will simply float up off the ground. Yeah. So the idea here was that the temperature adjustments inside the sphere would uh, like sort of act like a hot air balloon, right? Yeah. Like it would be uh, warmer on the inside, and subsequently it would float upwards. Um, but but that it would be large enough that it could float and uh, have the same quote unquote tensegrity of his domes, and also uh, house you know an entire metropolis. Um, this is uh, I'm, I'm going to read this part here because it's this is his explanation of how it works technically although keep in mind nobody has ever actually built right. a cloud nine um so he sees it as a half mile diameter geodesic sphere that would only weigh one thousandth of the weight of the air inside of it so that contributes to why it's able to float if the internal air were heated by either solar energy or just you know average human activity inside producing heat it would take only one degree shift in Fahrenheit over the external temperature of the dome, or sphere rather, to make it float. So the idea here is that the internal air would get denser when it cooled, and Bucky figured, you know, he'd put uh, polyethylene curtains around the outside to slow the rate that the, the, the air from outside was entering the sphere. So this is his, you know, he did actually think out some of the math and science around yeah. this. Um 
Essentially, it's a, it's a space age hot air balloon, except much yeah. larger, and uh, and would you know would would allow us in theory to elevate small communities, no, not whole metropolises. So I, yeah. I don't think he ever actually argued yeah. that, but but small towns, mini cities, etc. Well, you know, he took this idea basically because uh, there was a guy named Matsuturo Shiriki in Japan who challenged him and said, hey, you know, you've got all these big ideas. Here's what I would like to see. Um, uh, you know, come up with something that can float over Tokyo Bay. Um, and so that's where Bucky basically, you know, really put his effort into this. I, I believe Shiriki paid him to mm-hmm. sort of think this up. But, uh, so they had two names. We were calling them Cloud Nines. That was sort of their nickname. But the, the official name was the Spherical Tensegrity Atmosphere Research Station, or STARS for short. Uh, and his idea was basically like, you know, like with all of his other sort of portable homes or, or, or gadgets and inventions, you take these things around, set them up. You know, uh, w- one idea was that you could anchor them to a, a mountain. So you've just yeah. got this flying home next to a mountain. Or you just let them go. Like, let them go like a balloon that flies out of a child's hand and just the inhabitants would see the world, like wherever the dome took them. It's a, it's a wonderful optimistic vision. Yeah, that was mm-hmm. just t- technology has... I mean, it's the ultimate non-drudgery home, right? You're literally right. floating yeah. free of the world. You're no longer limited by the confines of uh, of your environment. You don't have to worry about floods or mm. storm. Well, mm. you probably, probably have to worry, worry about, about storms. storms, yeah. But but you know, you can there's a little advance notice. You can just float to a storm-free area, right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think that that's the idea. Call over the nearest zeppelin. I don't schedule right. it. Yeah, just schedule a zeppelin. Get a zeppelin coming by Drag to drop away. some yeah. bombs to build some homes. They just zip by, tug you along. I don't know. I don't know how he envisioned controlling the direction these things went. And I didn't read anything about like propulsion or anything like that. But maybe it was just all that fascination with Zeppelins at the time. Um, he would have been like a steampunk cosplayer nowadays. Yeah. I mean, I'm I'm kind of surprised I don't see this idea replicated in uh, in science fiction. I mean, I assume yeah. it is, is it has been used somewhere because because uh, Buckminster was just too uh, influential not yeah. to. But yeah. you think it would be showing up in video games left and right. You know? I, wor- I worked on something once that wasn't published where there was a cloud nine in the story. Yeah. And, and this was before I, I had started working here and done some really deep research on Fuller. And I believe, I want to say it was something by Warren Ellis <laughs> that I had read where he had uh, envisioned using cloud nines for something. Yeah, it sort of inspired me. And you certainly see this concept employed elsewhere with other uh, other other uh, individuals who are thinking about you know, the possible, you know, uh, Applications for this kind of technology, uh, in particular, a 1971 uh, edition of uh, Technica Molodesi, uh, which was a uh, essentially Soviet-era popular science magazine. Okay, and uh, you, you see this concept for um, colonies in the upper atmosphere of Venus, because. Uh, of course, uh, the planet Venus at surface level is just a yeah. poisonous pressure cooker. You know, yeah. it's, it's not hospitable in the least for yeah. human life. But conceivably, if you were to have some sort of a floating structure, you could, you could, you could just place it in the upper atmosphere and there we would be able to live, you know, artificially, not out in the open, but, but with a, with a little more, um, Earth-like conditions. So it's so like the, uh, a cloud city in Empire Strikes Back. Yeah, I mean, I was never sure exactly how Cloud City was supposed yeah, to float in that. I don't remember I was either. Just science magic propelling it, but this particular concept uh, in the in the Soviet publication uh, would have used a very similar design using. Um, uh, you know, you, depending on the buoyancy of the atmosphere enclosed mm-hmm. in a giant sphere. 
Okay. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. The drawing for that is uh, fascinating, and you posted that onto the stuff to blow your mind site already, right? Yes. And I'll be sure to include a link to that uh, post on the landing page for this episode. Okay. Great. Yeah. I, everybody, go take a look at that because it, I think it gives you a pretty good idea of how uh, hu- humans would turn a. <laughs> flipping sphere like this into a little microcosm you know yeah and it's like kind of remind me of like a submarine yeah and it's very much in, in keeping with the the fuller design philosophy of like here's something we could do potentially can do but there are a lot of steps that would need to yeah. uh to get checked off the list before we actually got to floating cities well and that's that was basically his you know uh end thesis on the whole mm-hmm. thing was he even said like all right i this is not an idea that i know how to actually bring about he called it a, a exercise to stimulate imaginative thinking uh and so you know he thought it would eventually be possible to do this but it, he didn't see how they could be constructed until his far future mm-hmm. i don't know how far in the future he meant maybe it's today maybe it's 200 years from now i don't know um so you know that's basically that's a that's a good round uh summary of a fuller there's you know more to him than the wacky inventions that we didn't really get into today. He is noted as being what we refer to today as somebody who would be like a green philosopher like mm-hmm. uh take note like the solar energy aspect of the um of the cloud nines that's how they would be heated, not with gas or or other uh fossil fuels. Uh, and he's also, you know, seen as being a social theorist too. So some people see him as really thinking ahead of time about human, uh, again, like what I was saying earlier, like I, I think he would be like a great urban studies professor today. Yeah. Yeah. He seemed to think a lot about, you know, where technology meets humanity and not just, you know, not just about what's come before and, ha- but, but also, but what we can do with it and, 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 and what needs need to be met by our technology. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I, so okay, I went into this, uh, you know, wanting to to, to love him. I, I think I learned a little bit more about his background, and it, it made me less convinced of him as an inventor necessarily. Mm-hmm. But uh, you know, even though only a few of his ideas have come to fruition, you know, he has influenced uh, counterculture to quite a degree, uh, social thinking as well. And uh, you know, a lot of Silicon Valley's pioneers uh, list him as being one of their biggest inspirations. Yeah, and ultimately that's that's his contribution uh, is that that he was a dreamer and he mm-hmm. and he was an optimist when it came to technology and uh, and design and uh, and so yeah that's his greatest gift as he passes this design philosophy on to individuals who can either take those dreams a little further or figure out how to uh, realistically apply them in a beneficial way. Yeah, the practical applications. Yeah. Maybe that's something that comes after his life. Yeah, you got to have somebody throw out the dream, and then somebody else needs to make it. Uh, figure out how to make. So it maybe work. he's not as much of a con artist as I made him out to be at the beginning of the episode. No, but yeah, I, I I don't think of him as a as a con artist as much as. Yeah, a dreamer who, like mm-hmm. like his uh, proposed uh, Cloud Nine, is is floating a little bit off off the air. Well, the, like his vision of, that he experienced of floating and being right. told that yeah. his life is not. Oh, his own, you know? yeah, look at that; those all connect. Yeah, the floating. He's literally, uh, in this sense, uh, <laughs> a uh, an architect and engineer who doesn't yeah. have both feet on the ground. Yeah. But that's why yeah. we love him because yeah. he's he's thinking free of those restraints. Absolutely. So there you have it. That is our Buckminster Fuller. Indeed, to dive into who he was. Why we're still talking about him today and uh, what some of his more uh, out there ideas and encouraging ideas uh, consisted of. 
So if you are out there and you have seen some of these inventions in real life, I'd love to hear about it. Uh, or even maybe, you know, see photos or something like that if you could send them to us on social media. Uh, you can find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Tumblr, where we are Blow the Mind on yep. all of those platforms. And, of course, the mothership floating mm-hmm. high above uh, the surface. Our Cloud 9. Yeah, is StuffToBlowYourMind.com. So check that out for all the podcast episodes, all the videos, all the blog posts, links out to those social media accounts, you name it. And you can always contact us at BlowTheMind at HowStuffWorks.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. 